um, friends, fans, and colleagues. Uh, this is Karen Tate, and uh, you're listening to Voices of the Sacred Feminine Radio on a special Saturday show. And uh, that snippet of music uh, opening the show was by those uh, wonderful reclaiming folks. Uh, they have a, um, uh, a, a CD out uh, called Fireside Chance. Uh, that's about raising energy, uh, especially for uh, activism. And uh, the one you were uh, listening to was called Sweetwater. So if, uh, if you or your group are looking for some uh, great chance to do a spiral dance or raise energy at a ritual, look uh, for the Reclaiming Fireside Chance um, CD. I think you'll be really happy with it. I play their music here um, you know, more often than not. And again, welcome to today's uh, special Saturday show. Uh, it is my great pleasure to have with me Joe Carson. Uh, you probably recognize her name. Uh, she's been a supporter of the show for many years, uh, and she's got uh, you know a body of work out there, uh, Dancing with Gaia, Celebrate Wildness. Uh, if you're a show regular, you've heard her commercials here. We're going to be talking today about the history and relevance of the Ferris Feria tradition. Uh, that might be something new to you. Uh, I know it was new to me when I first uh, discovered it uh, a number of years ago. Uh, we're going to talk about the history and relevance of this uh, tradition. Uh, we're going to talk about the founder, uh, Fred Adams. And um, since we were going to do a, a weekend doubleheader where in tomorrow uh, we were going to actually uh, experiment and do something different. We we're going to uh, actually do a feriferia ritual, um, you know, on the air, uh, but we're going to have to postpone that for a bit. So uh, today uh, we're going to talk uh, not just about the feriferia tradition, but we're going to talk about what a feriferia ritual uh, would look like. So uh, you still get a little taste of uh, the ritual aspect, uh, but... Um, you know, we're, we're going to introduce you to Feriferia to begin with. And the perfect person to do that is today's guest, Joe Carson. Uh, she's an author and a filmmaker. She's a woman uh, who wears many hats. Uh, so, Joe, uh, welcome to the show. And uh, tell us a little bit more about uh, uh, your work out there in the world, because I know it's been quite extensive. Um, thank you, Karen, and good morning. It's a pleasure to be on your show today. Um, I would like to just kind of put a little context around my involvement with Feriferia, which is that um, it was introduced to me by a mutual friend um, who knew Fred Adams, who was the founder of Feriferia, named Coke Runyon, who is the leader of the Church of the Hermetic Sciences, and I had been part of that group, and um, uh, he thought that I would enjoy meeting Fred. Um, and uh, Svetlana, his partner, so we went over to their home in a um, long time ago. This was in 1970 or 71, and uh, I was enchanted to see for the first time in my life a home that was completely devoted to the goddess, and everything that you could see, all the walls were covered with murals and pictures of the goddess, and there were icons and symbolic statues and paintings everywhere, and... Um, meeting, you know, these two people who had devoted their life to the goddess was really something new for me. I hadn't heard of the concept of the goddess 
and I came to understand over a period of time that um, that you know this that this was something that I really cared about. So it changed my life, and I went on to make <clears throat> two films uh, centered on Peripheria and um, One Wing Dancing with Gaia, which you may have heard about on this show. Um, and then I uh, have, uh, wrote a book called Celebrate Wildness, Magic, Mercy, and Love on the Feriferia Path, um, which is available on the feriferia.org website. And um, so really my life has been very much influenced by this initial meeting ever since then. And um, although I've gone on in the film world as a professional camera person working for Lucasfilm and many other Disney um, large film uh, makers, uh, my passion has always been around Feriferia. So um, I think that gives you generally a flavor of where I'm coming from. Yeah. Okay. All right. Thank you, Joe. Um, well, first, let's talk about what is Feriferia. Um, so my understanding, and, and you can always correct me if I'm wrong, Joe, because uh, I want to make sure I get it right. Um, Feriferia is a new contemporary tradition, yes? Yes. It's new in the sense that it, it wasn't existing in ancient times as that, but, I mean, it was actually started in 1956, which is not really new, you know, now. Um, so it goes back a ways. Okay, but, you know, a, a, a generation as opposed to hundreds of years or, right. uh, or longer. Um, I'm, I'm wondering, do you, do you know, Joe, um, what uh, inspired Fred Adams to start Feriferia? I mean, how is it different from your uh, your average Celtic tradition or, uh, you know, your other pagan tradition that he felt he had to start a whole new path as opposed to, you know, um, worship goddess or the earth within another pagan tradition. Right. Well, one thing that is important to mention is that in 1956, there weren't other pagan traditions. There weren't. There was Gerald Gardner's witchcraft, and, you know, an argument could be made that maybe the Church of Aphrodite was still going in New York, but that was a very monotheistic church, and so even though it was dedicated to Aphrodite, it wasn't pagan in the sense that we think about these things. And Fred had been reading, um, like, The Great Mother by Eric Neumann and some of these other um, uh, books, you know, Margaret, I forget her name, she wrote a lot of books. She was an archaeologist, anthropologist, um, um, Adler, I think her name was. And uh, she, uh, you know, had written books. So Fred read very, very widely in a massive, huge library. But at the time, it was just kind of interest. And then quite unexpectedly, and without the use of any, you know, drugs or consciousness-altering substances, uh, suddenly one day when he was at college, he had um, this profound experience that rocked him in a physiological kind of physical method. Like it just went down from the bottom of his feet to the top of his head. And he had a vision, you know, of the goddess as being the center, like the source of all being. And, uh, you know, the quality of that experience for him was very joyful. It was very, uh, like, profound and earth-shattering. And he kind of walked around in a daze, 
for a while afterwards, and the whole thing basically changed his life. And, and he he really felt like he wanted other people to be able to experience this experience. And probably what made it really resonate for me was that um, probably only maybe a year or two after I met Fred Adams, and I don't know how these things are related, right? Um, Again, without any drugs, I was like literally lying in bed, you know, maybe spaced out. I don't remember if I was asleep or awake. It definitely wasn't a dream. But I had kind of a similar experience. It was like this experience out of nowhere, unexpected, unprepared for, of um, what I could only call the laughter of the gods. It was this huge, joyful experience in my body. And I I didn't feel like I was afraid of death after that for a long time. I am now. Now I am. But, you know, time fades things. But, but it gave me a feeling of understanding what his experience was, even though he had different words for it than I did. Um, it, it, I felt like I got what he meant by that. And he felt like that his, his experience was like everybody should be able to have access to this and everybody should be able to live in this sort of blissful state, at least at times. You know, and uh, and a lot of what Fair Fairy about is is helping people reaccess and maybe create here on Earth a more paradisal form of existence than what we have now. So it's very future oriented. You know, it's not about just resurrecting old religions from the past, like Celtic approaches or Greek approaches. It's definitely about creating a future that's positive, you know, taking into account all the dreadful things that are going on on Earth right now with climate change, which was very much predicted by Fred back then, unusually, you know, for his time. And uh, so, okay. yeah, that's, that's what's the key thing that's different. Now, now say again, was this in the 50s? Uh, is that when yes. this... Um, this idea hit Fred. Okay. And um, how long was it before um, he actually created a group and came up with uh, a tradition and um, how to do ritual and, and that sort of thing? And, and do you know if, um, you know, did, did it come out of his imagination? Or, or who knows? I mean, it could have been divinely inspired. Uh, but, I mean, were there any other – it doesn't sound like there were any other groups out there to inspire him. So he had to come up with this out of whole cloth, right? Um, yes and no. Um, let me just kind of answer your questions in order. He did have um, friends, and one of his friends who may be listening now is Jonathan Beggs. Jonathan and he worked together, um, and, and they created something the next year called um, the Hesperides Fellowship. And Hesperides, of course, means paradise. And um, so they created a paradisal fellowship, and, you know, they had other friends. And my understanding is that there were a number of them that lived in kind of a group home in Sierra Madre Canyon. I've seen photos of this, and, you know, sure enough, Fred covered the walls, you know, floor to ceiling with fantastic imagery of, you know, people living in a paradisal environment and just, it was, I mean, he's quite the artist, you know, and so his art went through a lot of phases and the particular house was covered with this particular form of art, which was um, kind of flourishing and seemed to have Polynesian qualities. But um, but these, these group of people lived there and uh, my understanding from Fred was that they did create a temple um, up in the mountains near where they lived because they lived near the Sierra San Gabriel Mountains. And um, so that proceeded and then evolved over time, and I think around 1959 or 60 
or so he met Svetlana Uterin at the time, um, and they totally resonated, and, and they just couldn't stay away from each other. Um, and so eventually, because they were ultimately soulmates, they did get together, although oddly they never married. Um, but they uh, were together when they came up with the idea that they wanted to modify the Hesperides Fellowship into Ferifaria with a new name and a more um, uh, concise sort of outline of you know programs like they, they wanted to create a liturgy, liturgy of holy wildness was Fred's term holy wildness and you know what this really consists of is having ways to celebrate the earth and the cycles of the earth and to consider each of the changes that the earth goes through as causes for celebration like the changes of the seasons and the different months and even the days of the week and everything is immensely um, I mean it didn't come up as you say out of whole cloth, um, Fred was an amazing researcher, and he also reached out to um, really the most interesting thinkers of his day. So Max Freedom Long, who lived in Hawaii, was um, influential on uh, Victor Anderson, is my understanding, with the Polynesian influence on fairies, you know, his version of a pagan approach. And uh, F-A-E-R-I-E, I believe is how they usually spelled, or F-E-R-I, maybe more accurate. Um, and uh, so he was in touch with him and also Timothy Leary, who invited him to come down and join Timothy Leary in Mexico, where they had a commune for some time. Um, there were many others, Ralph Metzner and um, various groups. He reached out on Mean. I've got letters from her. So... Um, he was definitely in touch with a lot of the really interesting thinkers of his era. And um, so, yeah, I wouldn't say that it came out of nothing. Oh, he also considered himself a ceremonial magician, and he um, did mentor um, Pope Runyon, uh, who had the Church of the Hermetic Sciences and the um, um, Order of the Temple of Astarte, where they do ceremonial magic. So he became, you know, someone who other people turned to for uh, guidance. Um, he was just so... Erudite. He was so well studied. He knew so much, and he he was very modest. I mean, he didn't like um, ever, you know, try to put out to the world that he was some kind of a master. Although he was, but he, he certainly was modest, and, he, and and that was part of his charm for me. You know, he wasn't an egotist at all. Okay. Okay. Um, well, that that sounds interesting. It sounds like it, this really grew out of a, uh, you know, a, a fertile, a, a real fertile foundation. Um, so tell me a little bit um, about Svetlana. Um, the the few times I've read a little bit about her, uh, they they just, they talk about the controversial lady Svetlana. Why was she controversial? She was a very passionate woman. Um, I, I always put them in the past tense because most of them, they passed away. Fred passed away in 08 and, and Svetlana just two years later. Um, uh, she was Russian and she was passionate. She was very, very intelligent, well-studied. Um, but she had um, maybe like when she was a teenager, she had some terrible nightmares that gripped her about death. And... Um, so she was kind of occasionally given to panic attacks, and it in some ways grew worse at different times um, in her life. As time went on, she would get, to be honest, paranoid, you know. Um, I mean, it was like a mental thing, and she had she took medications, right? So she was definitely in that spectrum. And then there were other times when she was really 
like the the marvelous, charming hostess, and you know, and incredibly creative. And she, you know, she wrote like the Ferraferia has what we call the nine royal passions, which are the the rituals that go with each seasonal change, the equinoxes and solstices and that kind of thing. Um, and so she wrote these beautiful rituals, very, very creative rituals. And, um, you know, so, so there was brilliant quality about her, but at the same time she was on the edge mentally. And she did alienate, you know, certainly a number of people who either she reached out to or they reached out to her, but she somehow managed to, um, make false accusations and I think that I hope that people can find it in their hearts to forgive her because you know she wasn't really in charge of herself sometimes and she um, as I say had this problem with these panic attacks and these undue fears and that's why that's why she's controversial because she she did alienate people and I'm still I feel very sad about that because there are many people I think who would have really resonated with Feraferia but then maybe if they happened to be among the people who contacted her when she was during those periods, they might very well have gotten turned off, as almost anybody would if they encounter somebody like that, you know, during one of those phases. Um, and she didn't want right. to be like that when she was well. She, you know, she knew that she needed help, but she couldn't always stick with her program to keep healthy. Well, and you also wonder back then, um, you know, uh, psychiatry wasn't what it is today either. And, you know, you wonder if, you know, maybe she was, maybe she wasn't even properly diagnosed. And, you know, uh, I, and, you know, maybe she never really got the right medication or the right treatment she, she needed for the time. I mean, remember back then they were, uh, you know, doing terrible things to people in uh, psychiatry psychiatric institutions. I mean, they were still doing stuff like lobotomies. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, and she was to, never, I, like, I mean, and who's, she was I, never I mean, and who's to, to say, yeah. well, no, and I wasn't trying to imply that, you know, I was just saying mm-hmm. that, you know, decades and decades ago, um, you know, people didn't have the options of help uh, that they, that they do now, you know, um, so sh- that could have, also, um, uh, you know, uh, had an effect on, um, you know, how well she, um, you know, how well she managed her condition, you know. Um, right. You know, I, I'm just, uh, you know, along the lines of you saying you'd hope, you know, people would forgive her. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I'm wondering, you know, just the name uh, Feriferia implies that it's uh, a fairy tradition. Um, is it, or would that uh, would would that be misleading? Oh, it's it's very much a fairy tradition. Um, and Fred's point on that was, um, well, okay, Fera implies fairy, just the name, right? But Fera is wild, like feral, F-E-R-A-L, right? And feria, this is Latin uh, word roots. Feria means a celebration, you know, like a country fair or, you know, something like that. So um, putting them together means celebration of wildness. And um, But it's fairy in the sense that, you know, like maybe every indigenous tradition from around the world, there's um, an acceptance of the idea that there are spirits of nature that are alive and conscious, you know, located both, you know, terrestrially in the earth and, you know, in different land features, um, which we seek out and we make contact with, and also in the stars, in the constellations, it's understood that there are 
also the great fae or great fairy folk who live, you know, or have their being, shall we say, um, up in the celestial realms. And so when we have our magic circles, we call on the celestial fae, the great fae and the lesser fae, we call them, who, who are here on the earth and in the features of the land. So would that be the deities of Farifaria, um as opposed to, you know, like an Isis or a Bridget or an Odin? Um, you know, are, are there not specific deities in Farifaria? The main deity for Farifaria, although we make room for like everybody kind of, is um, um, Kori. And Kori means a young maiden goddess um, from the Greek words or language. K-O-R-E, and uh, we see Corey as being the divine dancer, the magic maiden, the merry maiden, you know, we have a million names for her, but basically she's a young woman who plays the role of the daughter in the archetypal divine family of the great father, the great mother, you know, the divine son, whom we've certainly gotten familiar with, and, um, and now we're making room, you know, for the first time in religious history for a central you know, centralizing the divine daughter in our spiritual approach. And she's so, see her so embodied in like Artemis and Persephone and, you know, Aphrodite and all these other, you know, there's a lot of them out there, especially in the Greek tradition. So if Corey is the daughter, um, who would be the mother, <clears throat> who would be the mother and the father um, deities then in Pharisaria? Um, okay, so we don't just limit ourselves to one, you might say, aspect of the male or, you know, female deities, the great father, great mother, but generally speaking, Demeter is probably the one that we focus on as the great mother more than the other, reason being that um, Demeter, the story of Demeter and Persephone is central to the Eleusinian mysteries, and that was a religious approach centered um, just west of Athens in Greece that was very popular for as an established state religion for almost a thousand years and as a folk religion for almost 2,000 years. It had a super long history and it was, you know, for a very, very long period of time, it was the main kind of spiritual slash religious, you know, path for, you know, however many people lived, you know, in the greater Mediterranean at the time. Anybody that could speak Greek and was not guilty of homicide could come there and, you know, pay the fee and get the initiation. And it was so secret that nobody would ever tell to this day exactly what they experienced. But they all said that what they got out of it was um, that they no longer feared death. And this is like a huge thing to get out of something. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, um you know, you've talked about you know it. Uh, you know, the Farifaria kind of has a wheel of the year, so to speak. Um, although mm-hmm. you didn't refer to it that way, I'm I'm referring to it that way. Um, what would be some of the you know the the high points you know on the wheel of the year? I mean, is there a Samhain? Uh, is there a you know a summer solstice? Um, what would we recognize? You know, the average pagan. What would they recognize in Farifaria tradition? Um, they would recognize all of, you know, all the usual solstices and equinoxes and cross quarters, which, you know, maybe we have slightly different names for it. Often people say Bridget will say or milk, right, which is the ewe's milk, uh, the, the sheep's milk. And um, 
you know, we'll say um, Beltane, right, at Beltane, right, and uh, Lunasa or Lamas, right. Um, we often call the fall equinox harvest home, sometimes so slightly, slightly different names, but Samhain is still Samhain. We have one additional um, festival, which isn't, you know, so common, with, well, it isn't with any other tradition, uh, which is repose, and that takes place instead of on a particular day, it takes place between Thanksgiving and, and, and Yule. And um, so it's a period of time where the Earth, and we're kind of in the northern, so if you're in the southern half of the Earth, you have to reverse, you know, the seasons. But for those of us who do live in the north, it's um, a time where your, your leaves are going down into the Earth, they're becoming compost, the seeds are going into the Earth and starting to transform as they do, you know, until the springtime when things start coming up again and are reborn. Um, so it's a time to celebrate, well, compost, you know, that, that moment and, and, or period of time when things go to rest for a while before being reborn. And we, too, okay, can well, allow ourselves to rest and go inward, you know, and a time for study and things well, like that, more inward. Right. No, I get that. And, I mean, I like to call it the time we marinate. <laughs> yeah. um, and, you know, that, I mean, you, you know, you, you, your group actually has a name for it, uh, repose. Uh, but I think that's typical of what the, you know, what the earth is doing at that time. And if we're in um, harmony and in sync with the, uh, the phases of the, um, you know, of, of the wheel of the year, you know, that's, that's when we sort of naturally do that too. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I like that repose. Um, and, well, you know, uh, we're, we're getting to a great place to segue into uh, what ritual looks like. But before we go there, just uh, a couple more things about Veriferia tradition as a whole. Um, I'm wondering, is there such a thing as like core beliefs? Uh, or mission state, statement, so to speak, and um, is it is this something that's just in the United States, or is it um, you know uh, in in other countries as well? Um, well, we do have um, Peter Trump or Phaedrus in Amsterdam, who has kind of a um, fair fairy. He's like our sort of fair fairy in European main contact. Um, so he's in Amsterdam, and um, there are um, other people in other countries who tune in with us electronically. Um, and, you know, one thing that's kind of weird, but, you know, in a way a, a silver lining with the move to Zoom meetings for our rituals, which we had to do lately because of COVID, um, we've been able to have, we had a recent online ritual for llamas, and we had a, a person from um, South America and, a, you know, someone from Canada um, and someone from Australia. So, I mean, we wouldn't have been able to have those people come all the way over to where we were. They just couldn't have made it, you know, to come to one of our rituals. But because we're doing it electronically, now we can. So, I mean, there are definitely people um, in various parts of the world that resonate with Seraferia, um, but we probably have more members in you know, the U.S. and then specifically California, just because that's where it got started. Um, you know, and, and I would love to spread Feriferia, you know, and have people, you know, form their own Feriferian circles, um, you know, with some understanding and guidance on what that means and what it is, of course. Um, but at the same time, I'm not 
we're super good at like advertising myself or I mean, I'm kind of like Fred. I don't to be honest, really like the public one like that much. And, you know, I'd be just as happy if somebody else did it, but you know, you don't see a lot of people stepping forward that want that role. So here I am. Um, but yeah, we, you know, there are people throughout the world. It seems like, I mean, or at least maybe not China and India. I've, I've gotten a few hits, but not very many people that have pursued it. And of course there's the language barrier. But yeah, for like true, European true. and you know English-speaking countries. So, what would be um, the mission statement, or 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 pillars, or the sort of foundation of uh, of fair fairian belief? I guess. Um, sure. So, um, if people want to really like read it, they could go to fairafaria.org. So that's F-E-R-A, F-E-R-I-A. And um, so we have our website there, and um, on the website you can look at what is Ferry on the top left. Um, but in terms of like a mission statement, the mission statement is very much about wanting to bring paradise back to earth, and the idea is that, you know, at a certain point in time maybe, or at least in our imaginations, there was a more paradisal state, and almost every religious tradition that you find, you know, says, yeah, that there was a more paradisal state at one point here on Earth. And whether that's true or not, it, it's not as important as the fact that what we're, you know, aiming at is creating something in the future that's far more paradisal than what we have now. It's very future-focused. You know, the idea is that if you, if you can't imagine something, if you can't visualize it, you're definitely not going to get it. So there is an emphasis on, you know, like in Fred's art, he would draw pictures of, you know, what does paradise look like? You know, how would be arranged? What kinds of buildings would there be? What kind of structures would there be? What kind of social relationships would there be? And, you know, what he came up with, the most most similar thing that I can say to describe is like eco-villages, that that's, if people know what an eco-village is, and there's certainly a number of those out there, you know, where people have kind of gathered together and they've gotten some land and they've, you know, created a housing situation which is not exactly communal but where there's certain shared facilities and, and, you know, a lot of chances to get together but at the same time a certain amount of autonomy, um, you know, and where they to some degree live on the land. Um, And then, of course, there's a real key thing with Fair Ferry about our future ideas of paradise is that really, and and I'm not 100% vegan myself, you know, I'm kind of leaning in that direction, but the idea, the vision of paradise uh, for Fair Fairy is that really people are mostly vegetarian more than anything or vegan because um, the act of killing another sentient being, it, you can't do it without having like a wall against your own emotion. You can't be sympathizing with right. the creature, at least not very much, right. and still be killing it. And um, yeah. so yeah. we want to not have those walls. We want to have that open emotional connection to all the living creatures. And so, you know, for that reason, we sort of go towards a vegetarian approach. And so what that means in practice for these, for this idea of paradise is that there's a lot more fruit trees and nut trees and, you know, like vegetables that grow like beans on vines and things where, you know, you can pick them, but you're not destroying the, the actual living thing itself. That's the perfect thing. Yeah. Because especially with the fruit trees and the nut trees, it's like, they survive because they create these parts of themselves that you're supposed to be able to to consume, and then that's how they you know propagate themselves is by creating these 
fruits and nuts and so on. So, yeah, that would be – and also it's a very easy way to um, to live is to have be surrounded by, you know, the plenty. And, and of course, in a tropical paradise or semi-tropical, I guess. I don't like too much heat myself. <laughs> Personal note. Um, yeah, it, it's like you're going to have um, a sense of being able to live on the land without – constantly engaging in the sweat and the toil. Yeah, yeah, I get that. I mean, for, for lack of a, a better uh, term, and, you know, and I don't mean it, uh, any Christian connotation, it's almost a Garden of Eden, you know, oh, yeah. um, uh-huh. you know, paradise, you know. Um, all right, so, um, you know, since we're not going to be able to do the ritual tomorrow, uh, and, you know, as, as you and I discussed, you know, maybe we'll try to do it at a, a time in the future. Um, tell us what kinds of things um, you would do in a farifaria ritual. Um, you know, it depends on the moment because a lot of our rituals are related specifically to the season and you're celebrating maybe the change of the seasons. And sometimes it'll be, you know, more specific than that. I mean, there's... Um, a series of rituals that have to do with celebrating um, the day of the week. And each day of the week, as people are usually aware of, you know, Monday is moon day and so on, you know, each day has a particular god or planet that it's associated with. So there are rituals that, that honor those goddesses and gods um, according to the day of the week. If one has time to do those rituals, those are many rituals and one can do them just alone if they like to. That's fine. Um, and then the months are um, lunar months, and they go with this idea of um, that there's this circle, as you say, the wheel of the year. And on that circle, you can map out, you know, the lunar months. But we have a system which was actually um, called OAM or Ogham, some people call it, but OAM, O-G-A-M or O-G-H-A-M, Celtic system. And that was popular, like maybe around, you know. 150 or 250 a you know ce common era till maybe uh 450 um ce and that one um um i'm sorry i got a little distracted uh 450 ce oh yeah so they, they it was a language and it was a language that people used it had an alphabet and they wrote on stones with it and um um uh Distraction just comes in sometimes. It just does. Anyway, so, so I, each I, month has I'm a trying to. What, what did? Oh, okay, so so the language somehow translated into a ritual. Right. So there's a month. Each one has a tree name that goes with, and the tree was doing something special during that month. And so that system of months is part of our series of celebrations. So there's certain qualities that go with each month, and each month has certain, you know, like flavors, you might say, like archetypal flavors. Okay. Um, All right. And so why don't, um, you know, as far as, you know, a, a, a ritual, I mean, you know, those of us that, you know, are pagan, you know, we, we know about, you know, calling in the corners, invoking the goddess, you know, setting, setting your intention, there's some sort of ritual action, uh, then, you know, you thank the goddess, invite them to leave, you know, uh, if, if they will. I mean, is that the typical format of a farifarian ritual as well? Right, it's pretty much along those lines. Um, you know, the, the 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 central part of the ritual might be to see the goddess, like you do a trance to see the goddess in the wilderness realm, or you might be 
seeking the advice of ancestors or, you know, the beloved dead. You might be doing healings or calling up the elements like with a rain dance or blessings like a baby blessing or land blessing. You could be doing a marriage rite um, or an initiation. Um, you could do like our whole earth initiation is a rite for the, you know, the beloved who, who has died. Um, we might be doing uh, sacrifices such as the, um, you know, fruit and juice and flowers, never blood. We never do that. Um, but, you know, sacrifices to the um, deities for various reasons. Um, and, um, you know, so there's a huge variety of kinds of what you would call the meat or central part of the ritual. Um, and, of course, you know, as I just so mentioned, tell- these other, you know, time-related ones. So tell me about a hinge, uh, Joe. Uh, I know you've mentioned, I've heard you mention a hinge before. I'm not sure everybody knows what one is. Um, could you uh, explain that? And how does that uh, play into a ritual? Um, so ideally, um, people can build their own hinge um, outdoors. And it's like if you think about stone hinge, right, that's a stone circle. Um, and there are many, you know, stone hinges, hinges made of stone in throughout Great Britain and, and in fact, uh, the entirety of Northern Europe. Um, and a hinge, literally the word is like very similar to the word hinge, and it means kind of the same, like the hinge that the universe hangs on and goes around. And so when you create one of these stone circles and call it a hinge, the idea is that you're creating a space that while you're in it, your universe is hanging on that central point, that that center of the circle that, you know, around which at that point, while you're in it, you're kind of beyond time and you're doing something that um, relates and can, can reverberate out into the entire, all the layers, you know, of being. Um, and what it physically is, is literally a set of stones, and you can set one up by, you know, sussing out where you want your central stone to be by looking at the landforms around you and figuring out, you know, what feels like the best place and then using a compass to go ahead and set up the north and the south and the east and the west stones and all that. And ideally, this, the hand should be at least nine feet across because you kind of need at least a little space on the inside so that you can do your rituals and have a space to have your altar in the middle with your elements represented on it. So it's so it's a stone circle, or uh, correct? Or a wood circle, or yeah, it doesn't have to be stone. It can be, you know, any natural element. The Fred's original first one that he made uh, was made out of these wood. What they called them men here. Um, they were uh, hard to describe a little bit. There's photos of them on the Ferraferia website, but basically an upright piece of. Um, wood that is in the ground and then it has a cross piece at the top and then a pair of like moon shaped pieces on either side of the top of the cross piece um, and it gave you a place to put you know little offerings and flowers and decorative things like that which is always fun so yeah okay. it doesn't have and to be stone specifically but it's a circle um, you know is, right. is, is basically the intention with uh, it sounds like at least a, um, a marker to sort of, um, you know, delineate uh, the circumference or something. Yes. Yes, you want to have your markers at the north, the south, the east, the west, the northeast, the northwest, and so on. All the eight, you know, directions should have, you know, a a marker of some kind showing where it is. It can be temporary. I mean, you can take some stones with you. 
and create one out in the woods, you know, and then take them home with you if you really want to. I mean, it, it doesn't have to be permanent. It's nice if it is because then right. you set up kind of an ongoing right, right. relationship to that spot. So what is the sun door and the moon door? Um, we open the sun door and moon door at the beginning of every ritual and close them at the end, and they refer to time. So the sun, of course, creates our relationship to the sun, creates the solar year of 365 days. And um, the the you know, that's one aspect of time. And then the moon door is the lunar month, of which there are approximately 13 that fit into the solar year. And... Um, the uh, the moon door also relates to like all these things like the cycles in general of time and women's menses and you know other important aspects of cycles right like things that grow and die so um, when you go beyond those when you open those doors which sounds something like this um, moon door moon door ash and alder cross with willow open revealing silver celestial seas of the mystery night. And then you, with your arms, gesture that you've opened that door and then you take a step forward. And then usually we have a priest who does the sun door and then we take the other step and now we are within the space of the the sacred circle and you're beyond time at that point. You've gone through that door and beyond behind you now is, you know, the world where time applies. And now you're in this thing called the pleroma, which is, this larger, um, it's hard to use the word space when you're beyond time because they're connected, but in this larger space that kind of is seen to include time, but that time is sort of a subset of it. It's larger than time. And that's where you are when you're doing ritual. So let me ask you, um, it sounds like the woman controls the moon door and maybe the man controls the sun door. Um, Would that say uh, priests and priestesses, if that's what you call your leaders, um, are they equal in Farifaria? Yes, they are, and uh, in the same sense that the goddess and the god are considered equal, but somehow the goddess still has primacy. She's understood to be the birth giver and the originator. There's a lovely story in uh, The White Goddess by Robert Graves, which is kind of an old book, and people should understand that The White Goddess refers to the moon, so it's not a racial thing at all. It's just the moon. And um, and she's she's understood to be uh, your enemy, and she, she dances, you see. She's out in space, beyond space time. She dances and she creates a wind from her dance, right? She makes this circular motion and the wind, she, then, she takes the wind and rolls it in her hands. She creates a serpent out of it and magically becomes a serpent herself and they couple. And then she lays an egg upon, you know, the deep, right? Which is kind of the waters, which somehow exists. And so then, you know, she encourages him and he, he keeps this egg warm. And then the egg hatches it and it's become, it is now the origin of the universe. This is like the big bang. So um, so they're together, and yet she was somehow there first. And so there's this feeling of the primacy of the goddess in Farifaria. And yet, you know, we honor all the gods. I mean, Dionysus is one of our favorite, absolute favorite gods. I mean, you know, they're all, yeah, there's a lot yeah. of wonderful gods I, I out there. I get it. Yeah. Yeah. I get it. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I totally get that and, and I definitely agree. So, um I understand there's such a thing as the four rivers of fairy. Does that refer to mm-hmm. the four directions by chance? Yes. Um 
in an ideal, you know, we always have visions of what could exist, and I, ha- I don't actually have an altar like this. It would be wonderful to have, a, like Fred made, uh, you know, artistic drawings of this, um, you know, a large, flat, large, flat stone, like coffee table size almost, right, with uh, slots at the edge, at the corners, which would, you know, then you could pour, you know, your juice or your sacred sparkling water from the, you know, earth, from a waterfall or wherever you got it onto the altar and then it would pour out the corners and, and that would sort of go in the four directions. And, you know, these are like an, like a primal image. And it's very powerful to do that, I should say, by the way. I've, I've poured out waters onto stones before, like big stones, and it, you would be surprised how powerful that is. Milk, too, it's amazing. That's even more powerful. Anyway, so these four rivers, it's like this idea that in paradise, and this is there are a lot of... Um, you know, religious traditions, they have this idea there there was a paradise and that there were four rivers that came out of paradise. And and some people say that it was the Tigris and the Euphrates and the Nile and um, um, the Ganges, I think, was the other one. You know, but different people have different ideas on which, basically, there are four huge rivers. And although they didn't actually meet um, at a common, you know, place at the beginning of them here on Earth, the idea is that they meet in, in the heavens somehow. And um, when we talk about that, it's to refer to this idea that, that in the world of fairy, which is kind of a more idealistic world than the physical world that we live in, that things are connected, right? It refers to that they would all go eventually to this ultimate round river that is outside of being and circles being, and that it's a river of consciousness, that this river of consciousness envelops and holds everything in it. Okay. Um, it, it, well, that's a, that's a beautiful thought. I mean, I could see that visual of, you know, when you, you pour the liquid and it goes in the four directions. And, uh, um, yeah, I mean, this is all lovely. I love the, the, you know, the birth of the universe with the egg and all of that. Um, so at, at the center of your ritual, you have something called the ground star. Um, so what does, what is that? And does it have something to do with invoking the goddess or? Right. So, um, picture that, and and this, by the way, could take place indoors, um, especially if the weather is bad, you know, and you don't have any choice or you don't actually know of a place to go outdoors, or maybe you want to be naked as an example, and and you don't want to do that outdoors, obviously, because there might be people. So, um, um, you know, and that's an option. It's certainly not a requirement, but, you know, there's always the thought that, you know, as free wild beings, we shouldn't necessarily have to wear clothing. Okay, so so you have your sacred space that you have created, right? You, you know, called in the great, great, great fae and the lesser fae, and you've called the goddess and the god and the elements and now you've created your sacred space and you've you know said about the four you know the great the four rivers of fairy <clears throat> so um then you uh have your circle and everybody lies down maybe on a blanket or a large set of blankets with their heads together and their bodies you know out towards the different directions in the circle so that if it was looked at from above it would look like a star, right? Because, you know, the heads are together and the bodies are kind of flowing out in all the different directions. And there would be a bit of touch. You know, maybe their arms would be out a bit and the hands might touch lightly or their feet might touch lightly. And so they form kind of a star as you're looking down at them. And that's the ground star. And then in that um, maybe semi-darkness that you have the room right now, um, someone leads a trance where, 
you know, there might be a grounding and you imagine that you're connecting with the center of the earth and then you're connecting with the stars and then you, from there, travel in your imagination to a place that's very well known to the group where they've been physically, like out in the wilderness, right? They've gone to a particular place as a group and they've learned that place, every stick and stone of it by heart. They know that place very, very well. And so in their imaginations now, they're traveling, and I've done this many times. You know, you travel in your imagination to this new location, and um, while you're in that location, you see in your imagination that the location has, um, like, say, statues of the goddess, which then come alive. So you have the goddess in her epiphany. Now, what is an epiphany of the goddess? It's where she becomes alive and she is present for you and you have this experience of meeting and connecting with you know it could be the god but for us it's often the goddess connecting with the goddess and you know she might very well have a message for you you know and it might be something you get on a a visceral level you know it might be that sense of bubbling joy that i talked about earlier in this show and it might be Mm -hmm. a specific message like Yes, by all means, marry that wonderful man that just offered you to marry. You know, or something, you know, it can be anywhere on that spectrum. It right. Be, um, you know, right. take that trip that you've always wanted to take. Or, you know, yes, immerse yeah. yourself in the stream that's right next to where you are. Whatever it is, you know, you're seeking right, right, right. maybe advice or wisdom. And so that's what you're there for. Okay, yeah. I mean, it's a, sort of a, a, oftentimes a typical um, a part of a guided uh, meditation journey. Um, so then, uh, you know, after you, after you do that, you guys have something uh, called a, a communion. Is, is uh, that different than like maybe bread and wine that's uh, shared at some pagan rituals? Um, it's not that different. Um, we call it the AVAL, A-V-A-L, communion. It has to do with apples specifically, but apples used to be considered like, you know, generic fruit. It does not have to be apples specifically. It's whatever is in season. Um, and we would do this part after we've come back, right? So we're, we're back now from our trance journey and um, or whatever we've done on that ritual, which might be any of the things that I mentioned earlier. You know, it could be the initiation or the, you know, baby blessing or whatever. And so we're back now. And um, so we have usually sparkling water with a little bit of um, peppermint um, that's, you know, a a stick of peppermint, a sprig of peppermint in the water that you stir into it, which is based on the Eleusinian mysteries. And um, then there'll be a bowl of cut up fruit or, you know, apples or berries or whatever, strawberries. And we pass those around as being, you know, like it's what the earth offers us freely. It's not bread. Bread is like from like wheat and you have to really kill the soil, it's really different in terms of the relationship of how you get it to fruit that, Mm -hmm. you know, grows on the trees and the berry vines and so on. So, you know, what comes forth... Okay, so the communion is fruit as opposed to... Yeah, yeah. Okay. That, that well, that that's a much better idea, uh, quite frankly. So, um, so Joe, believe it or not, uh, it's already been fifty minutes, and we have about ten oh, minutes wow. left. 
Um, <laughs> what, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the time just goes so fast. Um, so so um, let me ask you, um, what more should we know about uh, Farifaria, um, you know, in, in the time we have left? You know, would you like to mention the nine royal passions or, um, or I, you know, I, I leave it to you. Okay, um, the nine royal passions are, I think I intimated, you know, rituals that we do at the seasonal points of the, you know, compass of the sacred year. And each one has a story associated with it, and it's the story of the goddess as she goes through the year. The goddess understood to be the spirit of the earth. And, um, and I post those little, you know, it's like a story for each moon month, you know, the Beth, Beth Louise Neon concepts of the moon months um, that, you know, we got from the OM, which I was, sorry, but I was a little distracted when I was trying to describe that. But we, um, I post those on the Feriferia Facebook page. And so if people are interested in reading those, I just posted the most recent one for September. Um, and it's just that part of this series of the moon month stories that applies to right now. So I, I try to keep those up every month. I post the relevant one. And um, and that's kind of fun to read. And then um, let's see what else is going on that's interesting. Oh, we have so we have the Feria F E R A F E R I A dot org website, which has tons, like 150 articles on it, lots and lots of information. And um, it's a bit of a dysfunctional website. It's very very old. There is a contact on there. It's not excellent. Sometimes we successfully get messages from it, but not 100% of the time. So. Let me apologize ahead of time if somebody tries to use the contact and fails. But um, <clears throat> if somebody is very keen on contacting me, um, they can just uh, feriferia at earthlink.net will get to me directly. And um, uh, let's see. Um, oh, I want to update well, you, people on regarding. I'm sorry. Well, well, go ahead, um, uh, and I'll ask you uh, my question after. Okay. Um, and I'm very excited about the um, Feriferia Tarot. Um, initially, we were going to be doing just these little um, short version of the Feriferia divination system, which was um, based on the, uh, the Beth Louise me on the OM uh, symbols. And we have expanded it out because it became clear that we actually located in Fred's writing everything we needed to put together the complete Feriferia Tarot, um, which has actually 80. Um, divinatory meanings in it as opposed to the usual 78. Um, and um, I'm in progress on that. I've got a, gr a working group with me, and every week we meet um, by Zoom and we do these trans meetings and explore one of the Feriferia Tarot cards. And we're over halfway through, so I'm hoping that by this time next year, maybe I'll actually have the whole thing available in print as a tarot card system with the cards, and which are awesomely beautiful artwork by Fred Adams and all the meanings that go with of them, which is, has a specifically Farifarian understanding of how things work based on that the um, what you would call the pathwork cards, which are um, as opposed to the um, uh, major arcana, the minor arcana, that these represent relationships of planets with their particular archetypal personalities to each other. And so those relationships come out um, in the minor arcana and the major arcana, of course, has um, you know the more primary meanings that we have for the um, huge archetypes. So that's going to hopefully, well, as I say, come out next year. 
Well, it seems like uh, it's certainly uh, a well-developed tradition with with a lot of uh, uh, with a lot of depth to it. Um, now, I, I know if if listeners or regulars uh, they will recognize uh, the book "Celebrate Wildness," uh, which you wrote, uh, "Celebrate Wildness: Magic, Mirth, and Love on the Fair Feria Path." Um, is that um, more or less a handbook that uh, would indoctrinate you so to or orient you into feriferia? I prefer orient. Thank you. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's meant to be an introduction. And if somebody wants to really, you know, go with what's in there, by all means they can. It, it goes all the way up to the point of, you know, providing like a self-initiation ritual, which you know, some people would say, oh, it's really more of a dedication, but you can look at it that way. But the idea, the reason we call it an initiation is that you really have to do a lot to accomplish it, including building your own hinge. Um, and so that um, provides you with that opportunity. And if, if a person has actually gone through and worked their way through their own self-initiation um, with the aid of the land spirits that will join them, I promise you, in the process of doing this, um, then they, I mean, even they don't have to wait. But they're always welcome to contact us. But um, but certainly, if someone's gone through that level and wants to be more deeply involved in fairy fairy, we welcome people who've done that. You know. Okay. So uh, for folks that uh, maybe want to connect, is uh, Facebook the best place uh, for uh, you know the uninitiated, so to speak? Well, it doesn't provide nearly the overview that you get by going to fairferia.org. Facebook is like, oh, here's what we're doing right now. But if you want to find out about the background and all the different rituals that are, and I mean, it's not even complete. There's just so much material that I'm sorry, it's kind of overwhelming. We're doing our best here to digitize everything. I mean, there's also the Book of Fairferia, which is not commercially available, but it's like, you know, closing in on 900 pages long, and it's like everything. It's all the rituals and you know, the writings and the essays and so on. Um, so that's, you know, an ongoing project because we're adding more and more to that as time goes on. Um, but, you know, people sometimes volunteer to help with that. You know, that's super, you know, we appreciate that a lot. Um, best way to communicate with me, yeah, I, I, Facebook's a great way. Also on Facebook we have Friends of Fair Ferry, which people are welcome. Um, it's It's called... I think it's the term is private, but people can find Friends of Fair Fairy on Facebook and then ask to join. And I kind of filter them a little bit if people, I don't like actually invite people to join if they're members of like a thousand other groups because it's like I'm not sure what they're up to. I mean, you can't, no one has time to be in a thousand groups enough paying attention to them. You know, but if it's something that seems reasonable and seems to have similar interests, then yeah, absolutely invite them to, to join us. And we, it's a, way, a great, great little place to communicate back and forth there. I put a lot of announcements there, too. Okay. Um, all right. Well, why don't we close with you telling us um, what is the next uh, biggest uh, upcoming holiday uh, for Fair Feria? Um, that'll be Harvest Home, and it's coming right up. It's the fall equinox, right? And um, we will probably do a uh, Zoom gathering for it. And there's a lot going on right now. <laughs> it's a whole other thing, outside life. But um, but I'm thinking that we will probably do that. Um, at the very minimum, we'll go out in our own hands here and 
do a small ritual, but um, if we can kind of organize our time in such a way that it permits, we'll invite people and we'll do, like we did on Lamas, we did a, a lovely, you know, vision of the goddess trance journey um, on Zoom, and we had a lot of people that joined us on that. It was it was really fun. That was the one I was mentioning where um, we had people from different parts of the world. And it worked out really well. I showed a lot of Fred's art, you know, which is very inspirational around the goddess and so on. So okay. that's the next thing. Well, Joe, um, it, it has been fascinating uh, learning more about Farifaria. Um I mean, uh, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm so terribly impressed. And I know, uh, you know, Fred was an incredible artist. And uh, if anyone wanted to see more of his art, uh, is it out there anywhere? Um, if, you, if anybody wants to, if you just Google, I tried this yesterday, Google Farifaria and then go to images and let's like, Somehow, a lot of his art has proliferated out throughout the Internet. It's amazing. Uh, I'm surprised by this because I guess in a kind of a technical way, the copyright is really actually owned, you know, by Farifaria. Um, But nonetheless, you'll find a lot of it out there. And, you know, as long as people give Fred credit for the art, I'm, I'm, I don't know, in some ways okay with it. It's a little mixed, you know, as long as they don't claim that it's theirs. Um, But it has proliferated and you can certainly see a lot of it. It's quite beautiful. Okay. All right. Well, great. Well, Joe, thank you so much uh, for being such a uh, a loyal supporter of the show. Uh, I'm so glad we finally got you on the show uh, to talk about Farifaria, and um, I look forward to maybe actually uh, trying that experiment we we uh, you know we talked about to actually see if we can uh, do a, a ritual on the air. Uh, we'll have to do that when your schedule permits. Thank you. Yeah, I, I think that will be fun. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much, and uh, you have a good rest of your weekend, and um, uh, thanks again for bringing all of this information to our listeners. Blessings to you. Bye-bye. Well, that about does it uh, for me today, uh, folks. Um, I want to thank you for tuning in to this special Saturday show. Um, I am actually going to be um, your guest next week, um, next Friday. I will be bringing to you the uh, the next installment of, uh, of Goddess Calling, um, where I share with you um, one of the uh, the messages, the inspirational messages uh, from Goddess Calling, followed by uh, a meditation. And uh, we have a lot of great guests scheduled uh, in the weeks to come. So uh, if you have not yet clicked the follow button uh, for the show page, uh, you will definitely want to do that. And uh, that way you don't have to worry about uh, if you missed something great, because um, uh, I think all of our guests, um, or, or providing, in, you know, an incredible path forward for us. Um, you know, as Joe said earlier in the show, you know, if we uh, can't vision something, then we will never manifest it. And I think uh, so many of the guests here on the show uh, do provide us with um, uh, inspiration for a way forward so that we can create a better world. So, um you know, in, in the archives or an incredible source uh, of, of inspiration as well. So anyway, click the follow button 
And uh, and until next week, uh, I'll just leave you with the thought that uh, what you nurture, what you tend to, that will thrive, and what you neglect withers. So be very careful where you're putting your energy. And also... Uh, you know, with everything going on in the world out there, uh, I just leave you with this blessing. May Isis embrace you in her golden wings. Uh, thank you very much. Have a great weekend, and I'll be back with you next week. Bye-bye. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.